as I say almost every Sunday, I'm so glad to be here today. Uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, I was in Chicago. I was speaking at an event at Wheaton College, and um, then I went out to walk from where the event was to where my car was parked. I think it was 15 degrees below zero wind chill factor. The wind was whipping. Mark Twain once said, there was a time in my life when I was willing to die almost anxious. That's how I felt. <clears throat> I am so glad to be here. What a day here in Southern California, uh, here in our church, to have the privilege uh, of worshiping together with our brothers and sisters from Solana Beach and Dan to have you home. We love you here at the church. What a day in Southern California. This uh, evening there's going to be a festival of worship. Seven o'clock, John, is it? Down at the Cathedral of Our Lady of the Angels. And you're invited to come. Uh, hundreds, 850 voices will be singing and will be very involved. But at the same time, there will be another event also in our area with the uh, Grammy Awards. So many of us are involved in that as well. In some senses, the first might be really worshiping God. The other one sometimes worshiping music. But we do have a lot of brothers and sisters who will be there. And I don't know about you, but I, together, Karen, with your prayer, am, am mourning the loss of Whitney Houston. Uh, I don't know if anybody's ever brought me greater joy to listen to her music. She grew up singing in, in churches just like ours. They probably moved more than we do. But I mourn with her family and pray that they will find that God is their refuge and strength these days. And so we, we come in the midst of our world to, to cast our eyes on the God who is our refuge and strength. And I'll surprise you by, by, by the topic that I'm talking about. I want to teach you about how to waste your own life. What do you think about that? Oh, that's what I want to teach you. I, I rarely do that sort of thing, but the Bible does it a lot, especially in what's called the wisdom literature of the Bible, places like the book of Proverbs or where we're going to be looking today, the book of Ecclesiastes. So often it does it by, by God saying, I want to tell you some stories of people living their lives. And when they try to leave me out of their lives, they're going to end up ruining their lives. So in the midst of this series where Pastor Chuck and I have been talking about how not to waste our lives. I've just decided to do what the Bible does. And that's to teach us how to do it. If you want to waste your life, I'm going to show you how today. We're going to be looking at two chapters in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you have your Bible, see if you can find it. And I don't mind if you look in the index to try to find it. Uh, it's, a, it's a book that isn't looked at very often in our churches anymore. It was written a long time ago. But I'm telling you, if I can say it right, you're going to feel like it was written for 21st century Southern California. Now, now, I think most people in our world don't read the book of Ecclesiastes often. The writer, who may have been Solomon, so, so let's say for my sermon that it was. Solomon tells us that he is engaging in a very intriguing research project. What Solomon is doing is he is talking with people in his world about what they're living for. And, and when people leave God out of their lives, what he does is he looks at every one of their cases, what they say, this is how you can really live well. And at the end, he finds out that each one of them, the way that they're living, it just doesn't work. And the word that permeates the book of Ecclesiastes is meaningless. The way people are living their lives, it is meaningless. And if you read the old versions, it is utter vanity. Well, God does not want us, made in His image, 
to live meaningless lives. And what, what, what the, the Bible is going to be saying is, when we try to put anything else into the place of God, uh, that can be our careers, our, our work, uh, our achievements, uh, our pleasures, our dreams, anything else into the place of God, it is always going to mess us up. So if you want to figure out how to just go about ruining your life, you say, I hope I can learn how to mess my life up today when I go to Lake Avenue Church. That's what we're going to do. So how are we going to do it? Cameo number one in Ecclesiastes chapter four, verses four to eight. I've called him Charging Charlie. I think we have a picture of Charging Charlie. Carol Kenyon, our artist pastor, helped make these for me. Charging Charlie, I called the lonely workaholic. And what he teaches us is living life with the hope that we can work our own way to this successful living and we can do it on our own. Look again at verse 8. So, there was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother, yet there was no end to his toil. Yet in spite of that, his eyes were not content with his wealth. So you see what, we, what he's portraying, don't you? A person working, 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 charging Charlie, trying to get there. Now, let me say immediately. Do you remember that message from Solana Beach? You won't remember it, but do you remember that message, the first in this series from Genesis 1 and 2? in which we learn that work is a beautiful thing. It's a part of the way of really living. You and I are made in the image of God, and in the image of God we see God worked in Genesis 1 and 2. And he made us so that our lives can count and make a difference in the world. So you've got to make note of that. Work in and of itself is not a bad thing, but our very ability to be productive and to make differences in our world can be put into the place of God. And I'll tell you, uh, work is an enslaving God. It is a terrible God. As an old preacher once said, work alone doesn't work. Oh, I've never forgotten it. Work alone doesn't work if we think that just working is going to make it so that we can live life well. So I've been trying to think about how do I put Charging Charlie from Ecclesiastes into a 21st century setting? And here's what I see. A young man, just finishing high school or college, taking his first job in the company, settling in, you know, in the lower rungs of the company. But he has this attitude, and and I think you might know him. He has this attitude, I'm not going to stay here, not if I have anything to do with it. And he works harder than anybody else to succeed. In fact, that's all that he does and, and doesn't even notice the people around him or what he does to the people around him. Charlie can give a lot of reasons for his obsession with his work. Uh, I can almost imagine, especially in our difficult financial times, just saying, you know, there aren't many jobs out there. So I'm going to take this one, and I'm going to work so hard that they can't do without me, and they're going to promote me. Or, if I'm going to get ahead, I've got to make more sales in this company than anybody else. Or, if you get into a different profession, I've got to make partner in my firm if I don't get that I'll never get me and my wife and my family to the place that I think we've got to be so he can give many many reasons for his obsession but if you look up at verse 4 the Bible tells us what's really at the heart of this for most of us 
I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. We want to get ahead, probably because we want the approval of somebody else. Of whom? Maybe charging Charlie just wants to make sure that his parents know that he's not a failure. Maybe he wants to prove to his wife's old boyfriend that he's more successful than he is. Maybe he's just got to stay ahead of his brother or somebody else in his family. I can almost imagine here in the, you know, just past the Super Bowl, him saying, how on earth did my old college roommate get enough money to buy that 60-inch flat-screen TV to invite us all over to? I tell you what, I'm going to work so hard this year that next year it's going to be at my house and we're going to have a 70-inch flat-screen TV. He's the one who says, okay, there's a promotion coming, and I'm going to work ahead. There's no way this guy that I work with is going to get ahead. I'm going to get that job. Uh, I'm guessing that if we were honest, most of us can see a little bit of ourselves in that. Or maybe if that's too painful, I bet you can think of somebody else that you can apply this sermon to. One way or the other, the Bible says, look in verse 4, that living life that way is like chasing after the wind. I I see it in myself. I mean, most of us know people like this. Every second of a schedule book is filled. He's too busy to show up at a friend's or his children's music or sporting event. Uh, Too busy to ever serve in the life of the church. Uh, Too busy, even if a friend becomes sick, to go to visit. Because he's investing 100% of his energy and ambition to get to the top of his career. That very ability that God's given us to be productive has become the very thing that ruins his life. It's ironic, isn't it? Because we, we have been made to be able to work, but we have not been made for work. We've been made for God. Um, if, I don't know what version you carry, but you know this is written in beautiful Hebrew poetry. Beautiful Hebrew poetry. And there is a twist to the poetry that happens in the second part of verse 8. And and the way my version has it, I have an NIV. I don't like the way it translates it. It says that he stops for a while and he asks, For whom am I toiling? And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? But then he goes on working. That may be what it says. But I think that the way that it really was this. He never took the time to allow anybody else ask, Why are you doing that? Why are you living that way? The way it's put in the Hebrew means that he doesn't have time for anybody else to speak into his life. He knows where he's heading. He's bullheaded. He knows what he's going to try to achieve and how he's going to get there. He insists on going it alone so there's no time for any correction from anybody else, even those who love him the most. And so he has no time in his life to notice the people around him. Just a minute. He has no time to be able to care for the people he works with or to bring a blessing to their lives. He just thinks, I'll never succeed if I live any other way. And the Bible says this is meaningless. It's a sure way to ruin your life. Have you learned it? Make note of it. It's the lesson of charging Charlie. Let's move over to the second cameo. Chapter 4, verses 13 to 16. I called him Big Cheese Bill. I don't know why I chose pastor's name, Pastor Chuck and Pastor Bill, but we'll see. They'll, they'll get on me for this. Big Cheese Bill. I called him the frustrated executive. 
Uh, and what he teaches us is even if we get there, he teaches us about the fragility of material success even if we achieve it. Look at verse 13. A better a poor but wise youth, youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. So you see, see the second cameo takes us from Charlie, who's, who's on the lower rung, trying to get to the higher rung, all the way up to the very top of the firm. Uh, in Solomon's world, that would have been the king. In your world, what would that be? CEO, uh, boss, I mean, just think about the things that you dream about. If you made it to the very top, what would that be? And Big Cheese Bill has achieved it. What, what Solomon is saying is this. Okay, pretend that you actually get to that place that you really want to get at. Then what do you really have? Look at verse 14. What you have is trying to hold on to it, and you see others coming who someday are going to take it away from you. And that one who's coming, the youth, may have even come from prison to the kingship. Or he may have been born in poverty within his own kingdom. But I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth. You don't seem to be resonating with this as much as I do. You, you get to the very top for a while, and then you look back and you say, wait a minute, there's somebody coming up, and everybody in history who's been in my job, it didn't last all that long. And that, that we may think that person isn't worth being there. Uh, this person, you can see it in politics. How can they be voting for him? He was a liberal. And even if we win South Carolina, we might lose Florida. Even if we lose, uh, win Florida, we might lose Missouri. You see, if we just try to hold on to something, somebody's going to come up and, and undermine us again. I'm just telling you. I've had great job titles ever since I was 30 years old. When I read this thing, it became way too personal. I know this cameo is real to life. And it is true even, even for a pastor. I was just saying, can you imagine growing up in poverty in the hills of West Virginia? All right, then you come and you go to seminary, and everybody in seminary thinks, oh, I hope I can get to be a pastor of a really thriving or, or, or big church. And so the, the tendency is all this stepping stone mentality. You know, if I, I was a church of 300, I better find one of five, of five, I better find one of a thousand. All right, just, just imagine you might be able to be in a great church right there on the corner of the I-210 and, and Lake Avenue. You've arrived. Then what? If that's what you're living for. If, if that, you put the opportunity to serve God into the place that if I can have that opportunity, that's what life is all about. Then what? I'm telling you that then what? You'll find another church that's bigger. Maybe I can get there. Or you'll see other churches around you going faster. Maybe even the church that you planted. And you think, oh no, everybody is seeing this. Maybe I've lost my touch. And soon you're afraid maybe the board will come and say, I think we need to make a change. Does this sound like the 21st century? Does anybody other than your pastor resonate with this? I mean, this is the way it is. History is full of foolish leaders who thought that achieving success would bring them joy, and once they got there, all they could do is try to hold on to it. And then they found that they couldn't. 
They couldn't. The Bible is declaring to us that that's not why God made us and that if we're going to live for achieving success, it's going to be fragile. Verse 16, again, he uses that image. What this is like is chasing after the wind. I was in Chicago as I was getting ready to preach this to you, and I just remembered so much time when I was studying at Moody Bible Institute. I was walking there along Michigan Avenue. It's like a wind tunnel right in this one area. And I had uh, never felt anything like this uh, in my entire life. And the wind was blowing, and I didn't have much money at the time. And I remember having a $10 bill in my hand. And my hand was so cold, even though I had gloves, I couldn't hold on to it. And then I dropped it. And have you ever had a time where the wind is blowing that along and you're reaching there, you're trying to grab it, and the, the minute you grab it, it it's, it's right on three feet beyond you. You run over there and you try to grab it again, and it's not even front. You try to put your foot on it. You've all done this, haven't you? You feel like a fool. People are watching and laughing. That's what he says. This is like this stepping stone mentality of thinking, if only I could get there, then I could live. If we think that life is found in just trying to achieve status or a position in life, I'm just telling you at the end of that time, what you're going to find in your hand is just what we found with that $10 bill. Nothing, nothing more substantial than the wind. We're going to find ourselves being just like the Middle, Middle Eastern uh, tyrants who promised so much when they entered into those places and then soon were doing the very same things, maybe even worse than their predecessors because they've got to hold on, they've got to hold on because that's not where life is to be found. So if you want to ruin your life, just do it the way Big Cheese built it. You're learning it. You're looking pretty depressed to me. So. And you notice I've picked out only men, so let's move on to cameo number three in chapter five. I've called her Idealistic Irene. Idealistic Irene. I've called her the self-deceived promise maker. I think it's so clever. She thinks, she makes herself promises, I'll be different, but she's deceiving herself. And the lesson that she teaches us is the folly of thinking that we will be different from others on our own. Look at verse 8 of chapter 5 with me. So, if you see the poor oppressed in a district, and you see justice and rights denied, don't be shocked. That's the word that's there. Don't be shocked by what you see, thinking the officials should be doing something about this. Because one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are Others higher still, and you also have to remember you've got to pay off the king. That's what he uh, gets out here. Now, I, I find idealistic Irene a bit more complex than the first two. But here's what I see. As an idealistic young person, she looks at the world, and she's just shocked by how those in power just let all of this injustice happen around here. And she thinks, I'll be different. If I could get into power... Everybody would see it. I would be different. If I could become the state official, if I could become the boss of that firm, or even if I had enough money to do something, if I could win the lottery, then you'd see the difference. I would give to the church. I'd be out there helping the poor. I'd be mentoring kids. I'd be, I'd be, I'd be, if only I had. I, 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 know this too in her youthful idealism Irene thinks that she truly would serve others if only she could get to that place 
You know how true this is. Young people have that idealism, often right in those college years, and then say, we're going to make this world a different place and try to say, let's get rid of all the authorities that are here. And then 30 or 40 years later, you find those idealistic young people doing the very same things that their predecessors did. I grew up in the 60s. Anybody else here that old? I just, you don't have to vote. Uh, do, do you remember in the 60s how, how we would say, don't trust anybody over 30? Because they've all given into the system. And so you had this major upheaval of culture. And yet what has happened now? You take those of us who have grown up in the 60s, and now everybody else coming underneath us saying, overturn the system. Don't trace, trust anybody in, the, in their over 30 anymore. What's happened? And the Bible teaches us what happens to us. I won't go into how profound it is, but in verses 9 through 17, uh, Solomon puts his finger on two things. Uh, first, he points us to the fallen systems of our world. To get to that place of authority and power, at first we find we have to fit in and get people working with us, and we have to begin doing what all the other officials are doing to get there. Look at verse 9. So one eye, official eyes another one, does what's necessary to make things work. And so to get into that, your life has to be involved with compromise and competition, and eventually you don't even notice anything else because you're so involved with trying to get ahead, and you have fit in to the very same system that you were so upset with. And so, so Irene, he says, you've got to know that. There'll be a time when you don't even see the poor and those who are being treated unjustly anymore. And Irene, it's not just the system. It's also you. That each one of us, and in verse 10, he gets at it, whoever loves money, then will never have enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. All of this is meaningless. And if you read it through eventually, idealistic Irene will be right where Charge and Charlie was, working so hard in verse 12, she can't even sleep. She'll be right where Big Cheese uh, Bill was uh, being in that position but saying what's it all about look at verses 16 and 17 that ends this section as everyone comes so they depart what do they gain since they toil for the wind all their days they eat in darkness with great frustration affliction and anger I, I read this and I thought about that great 20th century play by Samuel Beckett, uh, Waiting for Godot, in that opening section where you have a pregnant woman standing over a, a freshly dug grave. Uh, the child comes out of the darkness of the womb only for a moment in the light and then is plunged back into the darkness of the tomb. Uh, Beckett uh, is affirming what what Solomon is talking about. That if our lives are focused on anything in this world, that we can, it, what's going to happen is we're going to go this very same way we came and we're going to look and say it's no different than it ever was. Samuel Beckett saw it. I think he saw it aright. He could offer no hope or change or help. But God does. But God does. God made us in His image. 
and he made us not to live life for these other things. God, God knows us and knows that ever since Genesis 3, people have tried to leave him out of their lives and find real life in other things. I mean, this, the pursuit is a good thing. Uh, and so Solomon does something that um, Samuel Beckett could not do. After each one of these characters, he gives a little bit of wisdom. And interestingly, what he does is he takes us back to Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, as I so often do. And he says the place where you and I are going to find real meaning in this world is not in living for anything in this world, but in relationships. A right relationship with people, because remember, it's not good for people to be alone. Right relationship with God, because only God can be God. And anything we put in his place is going to really mess us up. And actually even right relationship with our world, he says to idealistic Irene, that we have been, not been made to live for anything in this world, but to care for the world that God has made. I'll, I'll just show you that in the moments that we have. Uh, I have to have a section on how not to waste your life. Is that okay? Now that you've learned how to do it? Okay, first, verses four, uh, chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, he says specifically to Charging Charlie, you need to make sure that you invest in personal relationships in people. That as important as it is to be able to work... And as material things might be, they are always second to the very apex of my creation, people made in our image. Because you remember, Charging Charlie worked so hard, he distanced himself from people. And remember, Genesis 2, it's not good for human beings to be alone, because you and I are made in the image of God. I'll just say it again. There is one God always existing as three persons. God has never existed alone. God has always existed in this relationship of love and, and so the God in whose image we made we were made has revealed himself to us as our father and our friend and so we made in his image find meaning when we have open deep transparent relationships with our family members and our friends and verses 9 through 12 are there more beautiful verses in the entire Bible good good verses for a wedding even Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. Because if either of them falls down, one can help the other. But pity the one who falls down alone and has no one to help him up. Amen. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. Ah, oh, Chicagoans love that. But how can one keep warm alone? And though one may be overpowered in this world, two can defend themselves. Two can defend themselves. It's beautiful, beautiful poetry. He's telling us why Charging Charlie was such a tragic individual. That he um, worked so hard for things and distanced himself. He couldn't have even anybody speak into his life. Even if you have to work really hard, almost all of us who have to work hard have people around us. You know, if we'll notice them, if we'll notice them and care for them and bless them, even that workplace can take on such, such a different meaning. And we know how true this is. We know that when uh, everything else is messed up in our world, if our closest relationships are good, then life is good, right? And if we have everything else working out for us, but our close relationships are messed up, life is messed up. We know it in such simple ways. We know that when we experience something really marvelous together with our friend, 
more than half of the fun is just being able to enjoy it with them, right? Talk about it afterwards. And even if we experience something that is absolutely boring, there's a lot of fun in being able to talk for years about how bad that was. If you have somebody to talk with about it, isn't that true? So that's what he's getting at here. And then this profound last phrase. There's always a conversation piece, a cord of three strands. He's been talking about two. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. You wouldn't believe what the rabbis, there's so much that's been written about this. Some of them say it it relates directly to a marriage that you enter into it and soon there, there are children that come so that there's more than one that you're able to stand together. Uh, others will talk about it with regard to our relationship to God with two people where God is at the center of their lives. He is there. What, whatever it means, it just lets us know something that we know. The humanizing and strengthening effect of deep friendships. Because one strand will be snapped when the pressure comes, but where you have three bound together, there is strength. Uh, I just want to say to you that if you find your work or anything else, doing damage to your relationships, you'll know you're in danger. Uh, Put your relationships even ahead of your pursuits. Uh, Second lesson, he says, is a personal relationship of surrender to God. It's really the central lesson of all three cameos, but specifically it's given to Big Cheese Bill (laughs) because when you're the Big Cheese, you have a tendency to think you really are that, the boss. But you know, followers of Jesus... We are always under the authority of someone else. There is only one true boss over all bosses. Amen? Only one true king over all kings. And so he comes specifically and says to him, your place of authority that you might have is a tremendous gift, but not if you think that you're the king over all kings. It's not going to last that long. There is only one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when our whole desire is to please and to serve him, then whether we become the boss or the king or not, we can have joy. And if we're the servant serving that king or boss, we can have joy if we're doing it as unto the king over all kings. And if we don't let him be king over all kings, you can be the servant serving the king and only want his job. Or you can be the king and only want to hold on to the job. We've already seen them and that doesn't work. If you look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, you'll see how he gets at it. So that if we haven't surrendered to God, we'll even come into the house of God, and then we come near to, not to, to listen, but rather to offer the sacrifice of fools. In other words, we come in just trying to figure out, uh, God, how can I get you to do what I want you to do for me, rather than to come and listen to what he might say to us and say, my life is yours. We come trying to get what we can get out of God rather than coming to God and say, Father, for what did you make me? And it's when we surrender to that that we find true life. And he even talks in verses 4 through 7, this very profound statement, by saying that when we put ourselves ahead of God, we'll even give up our own principles. He talks about people speaking words that they're just not going to keep, making vows that they're not going to keep just to get ahead or to stay ahead. And at the end, it is all meaningless. The very center of our lives begins when God is the God of our lives. Then we can be thankful for whatever we have. We can use the gifts that we have with freedom and with great joy. But when those things become the center of our lives, they will absolutely kill us. 
It will kill us. But when God is at the center, we can live. Personal relationship of surrender to God. I call us all to that. And then just finally, verses 18 to 20, that culminates the whole thing. It's given specifically to uh, idealistic Irene, but it summarizes it all. And that is we have to have a proper relationship to the material world. And that is that we don't live to have any of that. That's not the center of our lives. We live to care for it as stewards. Just what David Podley was talking about. When we see all that we are and all that we have has been given to us by God, thank you, Lord, for it. Look at verse 18. This is what I have observed to be good. That it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink. I thought I'd get a few amens. And even to find satisfaction in the labor under the sun. You see, Jesus followers, we don't view this material world in the way the rest, many religions do, as if it's evil. We see it as what our Father has made. This is our Father's world. Uh, and it's been given to us, and we are the stewards to take care of it, and there's joy in that. So he doesn't want to say, I'm not saying that you can't enjoy eating and drinking and working and all that God has given. You can't, just don't live for that. Thank God for that. I love the translation that Jeremy read, the password to our true living is thank you. That, that when we do that in the language, if you read verses 18 through 20, is so, so beautiful. It's as if uh, Solomon is saying something like this. I put it in my own words. He says, now in all of this, I'm not saying that the world our Father has made is evil. It's good to eat, drink, and find satisfaction in our work. God made us for that. And he says, goes on, and when God entrusts us with wealth, we shouldn't view it as a curse, but as a stewardship. He says it is a gift from God. Put the things of this world in their rightful places. And I love the way it ends. God will occupy our lives with gladness of heart. Don't you think that's beautiful? This is the kind of occupation I want. (laughs) He will occupy our hearts with gladness. So Solomon teaches us that the key to finding joy and our work and our pursuits and our possessions has to do with relationships. Starts with a relationship with God. And then in, in the way that God values things, it continues on into a relationship with people. And then even the things of this world all have the right relationship when God is at the center. But put any of those things into the place of God. And I'm just telling you, you'll learn how to ruin your life. And as uh, Solomon says it so often, you'll find it's a miserable business. I'll I'll just tell you as I end, um, if you read all the way through Ecclesiastes, you always get this feeling that Solomon sort of knows that there's more to be said. But he doesn't quite know what it is. He knows that a rescuer king that's going to come through the line of his father David is going to come who will make everything right. But Solomon lived long before Jesus. So you find, I read that book and I see a longing towards something that Jesus really helps us to understand. That where we are seeking truly to live, that one actually came, God himself came, to make the things right that are wrong in our lives. That we've we've put ourselves or other things into the place of God and gone our own ways and destroyed our lives. That he's done something that can offer forgiveness of that past. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. 
He offered himself in our place. And what he did is sufficient for our forgiveness and our salvation. But also he gives to us when we receive him a renewed relationship to God and his own Holy Spirit to dwell within us who begins to empower us to find freedom from living for what the rest of the world is living for. So it all begins with trusting him. And as we saw last week, Jesus can set us free from being the charging Charlie, saying, I've got to get there myself. From being the big cheese Bill who says, I've gotten there, but it's no good. I've got to hold on to it anyway. Or idealistic Irene who foolishly thinks that she can do it on her own. We can do all things, but through Christ who gives us strength. And when we surrender our lives fully to him, we will know that anything in this world can be used, as he said last week, to welcome friends into eternal dwellings. That these temporary things can be used for eternal gain. And when we learn that, we learn to live well. May we do so, so that we might live to his glory. Amen. Let me lead us in prayer. We're going to be singing a song that helps us to, to sing joyously about knowing the everlasting God. So let me lead us in prayer. Father, as we've gathered here, I am just so sure that so many of us can relate to, to these three characters. We are still, as David said, in process. We're not all yet that you would have us be. But you love us as we are and won't leave us where we are. So, Father, if there are some who've come who've never known you as Father through faith in Jesus, who somehow sense that, that you are real but, but don't know you and how to live for you, may this be their day of salvation, their day of faith. Help them to see that this message is true. That what your word talks about is a lesson in how to live. Father, may this be the day in which some who have gathered here come to know Jesus as the Lord and Savior of their life and you as their heavenly, loving Father. For the rest of us, Father, the, where we have known you but so often turn away and take our lives over ourselves and think that we'll find meaning in other things, we give ourselves afresh to you, a, a new surrender to you today. Show us areas of our life that we've tried to put into your place. We see that when we try to live for those things, it's chasing after the wind. But, Father, when our lives are invested in you, there is substance and there is life. Speak to us, Father, today that we may live to your glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let us stand and sing and declare our God is everlasting as thankful people for a God who has reached down and revealed himself to us. Sing.